Hey everybody, it's been a 007 back for an Agatha Christie reread mini pod to discuss 1936's Murder in Mesopotamia. Definitely one of the minor Hercule Poirot novels, which I hope all will be revealed as to why we've classified it that way in the after show spoilers where we discuss the ending, which I have to say, given that this book comes sandwiched between ABC Murders, which is so fantastic, and Cards at the Table, Death on the Nile, is probably one of the weakest resolutions of her murder mysteries. This book was originally published in 1936, so in a real purple period of her writing. Agatha is 46 years old. She's very happily married to her second husband, the archaeologist Max Malowan. And lots of the detail of how an archaeological dig operates comes through in this novel and makes it a really authentic travelogue, really, more than a murder mystery. As always in this series, I will discuss the characters, the plot, um, the context of this novel, its links to the Christieverse in a spoiler-free manner. I'll then, after the end credits music, get into the plot resolution and why this is simply a mini-pod. Okay, let's get into the story. So this novel, although it features Hercule Poirot, does not feature Inspector Japp or Captain Hastings because it is set on an archaeological dig and it is told in the first person by a character called Nurse Amy Leatheran, who has arrived at an archaeological dig near Hassanie in Iraq to assist an archaeologist called Dr. Eric Leidner in caring for his wife, Louise. And we're taken to believe that the wife is neurotic, that there's probably nothing, so to say, medically wrong with her, and that the husband at the end of his tether has brought in a nurse just to try and maybe appease his wife and calm her down. The reason for Louise's neurosis is that years and years before, she was actually married to a German called Frederick Bosner. And during World War One, Bosner was arrested for being a spy by the US State Department and apparently sentenced to death. So Louise believes he is dead. However, when she went on with her life and were taken to believe that she is a dramatically beautiful woman who men cannot help but be attracted to and that she enjoys this. She loves being the centre of attention. But whenever she comes across a new beau, someone who proposes to her, she starts getting threatening letters from her supposedly dead husband, um, telling her to break off the engagement, which she does. And then finally, years and years later, she meets Dr. Leidner and everything seems to go well. There are no threatening letters. They get married. There are no threatening letters. And maybe, maybe this is her chance at happiness. However, a couple of years into the marriage, on this dig, the letters reappear and it throws Louise into a tizzy. Her husband knows all about it and they're kind of trying to figure out who it is. Anyway, we are sort of in a closed house mystery here. The archaeological dig has a cast of international characters. Um, We have a priest who is also an expert in ancient scripts who translates some of the finds. We have characters from all around the world. So principally, we've got Captain Maitland, who is the British policeman who's in charge of the murder investigation, and his daughter, Sheila Riley, who's a very much an Agatha Christie, bright young woman, very outspoken. She's kind of the only young girl around the place, so she also expects to have a lot of the male attention in the dig. 
We've got Anne Johnson, who's a very sensible, practical archaeologist. She's known Dr. Leidner for many years um, and really trusts him very much and works with him on the dig. Kind of the opposite of Louise Leidner. She's a professional woman and sensible, maybe not the glamorous uh, wife that Louise is. And then we've got a number of gentlemen, all kind of in the same age cohort, which is significant because we're going to learn that Frederick Bosner, the first the first husband of Louise, had a younger brother. And there is some question as to whether these threatening letters are being sent by the younger brother in revenge at the woman, Louise, who dobbed her brother in and had him dobbed his brother in and had him executed. So a kind of younger brother grows up and enacts revenge plot. So there's Richard Carey, who's English. He's he's meant to be very handsome. Also a longtime colleague of Dr. Leidner, really respects him. And everyone accuses him, and a lot of people are accusing him of having an affair with Mrs. Leidner. So there's evidently some sexual tension there. And by the way, Richard Carey, this very handsome, very quiet, very gentlemanly young English archaeologist, is very much modelled on Agatha Christie's second husband, Max Mallowan. And then we have Dr. Giles Riley, who is a civil doctor in Hassanier, a long-time friend of Poirot and is very much um, responsible for getting Poirot involved in investigating the murder. Um, also on the dig, we have Mr. and Mrs. Mercado, who are Spanish. They are both, um, well, Joseph is an archaeologist, um, but all is not well in that marriage. Mrs. Mercado seems quite bitchy and quite hostile to Mrs. Leidner. Joseph seems very unreliable, maybe ill, something weird is going on there. There's a young American called David Emmett, who also could potentially be the younger brother. He's on the second year with the dig team, seems fairly calm. And then we've got Bill Coleman, who is also a young man on the dig, could also potentially be the younger brother. Um, he's known to be a forger, so is he potentially doing the letters? Um, we have Carl Reiter, a young American who is the photographer on the dig. Again, could potentially be one of the candidates for the younger brother. We've got Father Lavigny, who is the French uh, monk, who is the speciality in foreign languages. And then there's Abdullah, the servant. So that's kind of the cast of characters, very male leaning, very international, all thrown together in this stick. Um, so as I said, the, the novel opens with these threatening letters being sent to Mrs. Leidner. Um, people have more or less sympathy with it. Her husband seems to be incredibly devoted to her, but you do get the sense that for some others, especially the women, the wives who are more practical, it's like, oh, come on, pull yourself together. Until, unfortunately, Mrs. Leidner is found dead and she's found dead in her bedroom, blunt force trauma, back of the head. Um, but it's not clear how anyone could have got into the room through the doorway because the, the archaeological dig house is, is kind of in a quadrangle. So a closed courtyard in the middle and one main entrance and a map of this setup is shown in the book and when you know with Agatha Christie when she shows you maps of layout when she shows you letters or documents or we're going to find bridge scores in the next book it's very significant so you have to pay a lot of attention to the layout of this this quadrangle and who could potentially have had access to Mrs Leidner's room to murder her. So that's very much the setup of the book and the characters involved. Um, Hercule Poirot is brought into the case. He happens to be in town because um, although the novel is published in 1936, we're told that he is actually, this is something that took place in the past. Um, and we know that when he did Murder on the Orient Express, he was traveling back from a case in the Middle East. So this is a case that he is solving en route to the Orient Express. 
What else do we have in the Christie verse? Well, like I said, there aren't a lot of recurring characters because there's no Inspector Jap and Captain Hastings. This is the case that predates Murder on the Orient Express. Um, there's also a reference to the mystery of the blue train. So in chapter 12, Dr. Leidner recalls hearing a, quote, Mr. Van Alden speak highly of Poirot. And Rufus Van Alden was the character who hired Poirot to investigate the death of his daughter. But that's pretty much it for, for um, Christieverse connections. Now, how does this novel strike us? How does it read? I have to say it's a pretty dull read. And the reason is, is that what I found really interesting was the local colour, was the idea of, you know, describing what it's like to travel out to Iraq in that period, what it's like to see the landscape, the people. Um, and I almost feel this would have been better off as a tra- travelogue of what it's like to accompany an, arche- an archaeological dig. I felt that as a detective story, it was rather flat. And I think one of the reasons for that is that the the narrator, Nurse Leatherin, is really quite dull and quite straightforward. She's not one of Agatha Christie's really memorable young women. She's just so practical and dry. And Sheila Riley, who could potentially take on that role of that really interesting, fascinating character, like the Bundle Brents and the, you know, the heroines of of Agatha Christie novels, just really isn't that present either. So I think there is something unfortunate about the choice of narrator. Now, it could be that Agatha Christie was trying on a character for size, At the time, there was another detective writer called Mary Roberts Reinhardt, and she had a famous lady detective called Miss Pinkerton, who was a nurse. And, you know, Mary Roberts Reinhardt was often called the American Agatha Christie. She was also, interestingly, according to Wikipedia, the originator of The Butler Did It in 1930s The Door. So that that trope of detective fiction. And similarly to Agatha Christie, she started writing when her family lost their money in the 1903 crash. So the idea that these women, in a time when women didn't often become professional writers, had to do so because their families lost money. And so they were kind of afforded both the opportunity and the urgency to earn their own money, which I find really interesting. But anyway, Mary Roberts Reinhardt seems really interesting. She apparently served as a war correspondent in World War One and interviewed uh, Sir Winston Churchill and the Queen and went to the Belgian front. That's really cool. And on top of that, she also wrote the play or a play called The Bat in 1920 about a masked villain that apparently influenced Bob Kane creating Batman. So, wow, what a woman. Kind of feels like there's a bit of follow up reading once we're done with Agatha Christie on the back of all of that. Um, But yes, I don't find um, I don't find Nurse Leatherin an interesting narrator. Poirot arrives fairly late on in this novel. I found a lot of the twists and turns quite dull. And as we'll get into in the spoiler section, I found the denouement so disappointing. Before we do that, I want to get into um, adaptations and how the book holds up to modern context. So there's only one adaptation of this novel on TV, which is the David Suchet Hercule Poirot series that was on ITV in Britain, can be accessed fairly readily on ITVX and BritBox if you're in the States. It's it's actually, it's a well done adaptation. It's set in Tunisia, so they do go um, on location. It feels like you're in an archaeological dig. There's lots of great artifacts in it. Um, so it's great for sort of setting the scene. It's fairly well cast, but unfortunately, I think the sort of underlying constraints of the fact that it's not that interesting a novel mean that it's not that interesting a book. And they really boo-boo because they bring in Captain Hastings as a character, which really means that Nurse Leatherin doesn't get much of a look in at all. And I don't know, it just all feels very hackneyed. So not a great adaptation, but if you're a completionist, you can watch it fairly easily. 
In terms of the tone and the context of the book, we are in full-on imperial, colonial, Middle East. And yes, there are some very unpleasant terminologies. And there are references to natives. Um, The Arabs don't really have characters. They are referred to as uh, just really, really racist terminology that Arabs are timid, that they're liars. Um, Even Arab dogs, poor Arab dogs, all Arab dogs are timid, apparently. Um, Here's a quote from the novel from, I think, Captain Maitland when he's investigating the crimes, quote, lies told by an Indian cook and a couple of Arab houseboys. You know these fellows as well as I do, truth as truth means nothing to them. They say what you want them to say as a matter of politeness, end quote. So really racist tropes about Arabs and indeed the Indian cook. And then even the Mikados, who are Spanish, get really racist treatment due to their more olive skin colour. Here we go. Mikado is described as having, quote, a touch of the tar brush. I hope as a modern listener slash reader, you don't even know what to have a touch of the tar brush means. It's a very old idiomatic phrase to say that, you know, your skin is brown because it's been polluted by the tar brush. Um, it's a really horrible phrase and ugh, not very good. This novel also has some misogyny in it, not least in the denouement. Um, but anyway, even before then, this is Poirot's advice to one of the men on the dick. Quote, Mon ami, let this be a lesson to you. You are a man. Behave then like a man. It is against nature for a man to grovel. Women and nature have almost exactly the same reactions. Remember, it is better to take the largest plate within reach and fling it at a woman's head than it is to wriggle like a little worm whenever she looks at you. End quote. So to sum up, it's a novel that I don't think works particularly well. It's not particularly exciting and it has really nasty, misogynistic and racist language in it, which is another reason why I just don't think it really merits time of itself. But what is interesting is to see the slightly bitchy side of Agatha Christie because she has based Mrs. Leidner on a very famous archaeologist called, well, very famous woman called Catherine Woolley, who was married to Sir Leonard Woolley, um, both of whom knew uh, Max Mallowan because Mallowan had worked on Woolley's excavation at Ur, upon which much of this is is based. Um, and, you know, Agatha Christie was good friends with Catherine Woolley. Um, it's kind of bizarre. It really is that you would then transcribe the character of one of your good friends into a novel, but make her this sort of quite narcissistic, quite vainglorious woman who then gets killed. Anyway, there is really interesting stuff you can read, off, read up on about this. And I'll put a note in the show notes about a Blogspot article by BJ Richards from 2013 that has a lot of this detail that I'll be reading from. Also a lecture by Henrietta McCall at the British Museum on the 8th of November 2012. So you can Google that and find some of the detail that I'm now going to read out. So Catherine Willey began her childhood in Germany. She was born in 1888 to a wealthy and well-respected family. She went to Oxford University, which would have been incredibly unusual. This is a period when women didn't go to big colleges and where, you know, they certainly weren't allowed to matriculate with degrees. But anyway, she didn't finish her degree because of her quote unquote frail health. She ended up working as a British military nurse, which required her to keep her German heritage a secret. And she served in London, Poland and Egypt. So it feels like she had this amazingly interesting life. 
And then when she was in London, she met her first husband, Lieutenant Colonel Bertram Keeling, who was part of a team conducting geographical surveys of Egypt. They married in 1919, just after World War I, and travelled to Egypt thereafter. So fascinating life so far. And then in 1919, six months after their wedding, Catherine was feeling ill and a doctor was summoned to examine her. So apparently the doctor then met with a husband privately for 20 minutes. He then left, the husband then left the house and committed suicide by poisoning himself in the Giza desert. And it was blamed on temporary insanity. There was no prior indication that um, of why he would commit suicide. So McCall in her lecture posits that he was told something by the doctor that caused him to commit suicide. So Catherine is now a young widow. She goes back to being a nurse to support herself. And she ends up in Baghdad and visits the site of the Ur excavation, um, meets Charles Willey, who invites her to join it as a volunteer assistant. And then she starts working for him and eventually they get married. And we're, we're led to believe that like Mrs. Leidner, Catherine is very, very good looking and that most of the men on the dig were a little bit in love with her. Now, this is really interesting because she seems to enjoy the male attention, but she resists romantic overtures. Now, apparently, Leonard and Catherine Woolley got married because people thought it was just, you know, not quite proper to have this young, attractive woman unmarried on the dig, particularly his sponsors from the University of Pennsylvania. So rather prudish. Catherine agreed to marry him so long as he would not consummate the marriage. They were married in 1927. And a year later, Agatha Christie visits the archaeological site. Two years later, Christie married Max Mallowan, and Christie was no longer welcome on the site, maybe because it was competition for the attention. Anyway, at the same time, 1929, Leonard Woolley is writing to his attorneys asking to divorce Catherine on the grounds that she wouldn't consummate the marriage, even though she had made this perfectly clear when they got married, which I think kind of makes him out to be a bit of a dick because, you know, when a woman says what she wants or indeed does not want, take her seriously. Anyway, they never did get a divorce because Catherine Woolley then, poor thing, got multiple sclerosis and Woolley probably thought that that would have been rather cruel. Um, And, you know, she was really helpful to his career. She helped on the dig. She helped socialise with London's elite and raise funds. So she really was a great archaeologist's wife and really helped promote his career. Now, what I'm going to say next is pure hypothesis. And it becomes from that lecture at the British Museum. But the fact that it was a lecture at the British Museum makes me think that maybe there's been some vetting of it as a hypothesis, at, at least. And Harry McCall hypothesizes that Catherine McCall suffered from complete androgen insensitivity. Basically, this means that she was genetically male with both X and Y chromosomes, but that her body was insensitive to male hormones, so she appeared female. She would not have had male genitalia, and she would have developed breasts, but she would not also have had proper female genitalia, so she was intersex. And, you know, she probably didn't have a fully developed vagina, so probably couldn't have suffered or endured full intercourse, which, if true, I mean, like, how awful. And... Not how awful to be born in sex, but in a period where it wasn't well understood and where you would have been probably very confused and very stigmatized. I mean, maybe that's still true today, but one would hope you'd get much better medical understanding and provision um, and psychological help if, if required to deal with that. Anyway, anyway, so that's the story of Catherine Woolley. Regardless of what was going on with her, I do think it's fascinating that Agatha Christie could make such a fascinating female character, but based on apparently her best friend. <laughs> 
this woman who's almost like a sort of a magnet to men, but actually quite dangerous to get to know and quite narcissistic. And it's interesting that we're going to come to another novel set in the Middle East. When we get to that novel, there's a very monstrous, controlling mother who likes to be the centre of everyone's attention. And I also wonder if that was a little bit based on Catherine Woolley. But I think it, it's kind of an interesting story, both for what it shows you about the time, what it shows you about Agatha Christie and her willingness, whether conscious or subconscious, to use the material around her. And yeah, I mean, it does it does put her in a slightly darker, more subversive light, I think. Anyway, that is really a sad indictment of this novel, because it's kind of like the stuff around the novel is far more interesting than, than what's in the novel, which is never a good thing, and why this is indeed a mini-pod. Anyway, I'm going to briefly discuss the ending after the end credits music. Um, please stay tuned, though, because the next episode, we're going to do the fantastic cards on the table. It's one of the best Hercule Poirot novels. It's so intricate, and it's plotting. It's got great characters, and we hope for you to tune back in then. <laughs> Okay, folks, let's get into the the solution to this novel. Unfortunately, there is a second murder of the lovely Anne because she realises that it's probably Dr. Leidner who has been writing the blackmail notes to his wife and probably does figure out actually that no one came into the room through the courtyard, but that she was killed by being lured to poke her head out of her bedroom window and having a stone dropped on it from above. So the flat-roofed archaeological dig house, um, Dr. Leidner could have stood on the roof, attached a bit of rope to a stone and dropped it down to sort of kill his wife from above. And then he would have gone into her room, dragged the body to a different position so people wouldn't have res- uh, um, would not have expected that it was the window as the point of entry and thus committed the murder. And then we realised that why he decided to commit the murder was that, a bit like Agatha and Max Malowin, that his wife had fallen for the young Richard Carey, the handsome young archaeologist, and he had fallen for her. So where the notes um, did not appear when his wife was falling in love with him, they appear when she's falling in love with someone else. And then the biggest twist of all, I mean, so far I can I can buy all of that, that a jealous husband kills his wife. But what I really don't buy is that the jealous husband, Dr. Leidner, is in fact the first husband, Dr. Frederick Bosner, sorry, Frederick Bosner, the German spy who Catherine had supposedly killed, but actually escaped execution. The idea that a woman, even 20 years later, would not physically recognise her younger husband from years below and before, even if his face had been partially disfigured from the body, from his mannerisms, I find just implausible. And it's interesting that when you read reviews of this book from the time, they don't seem to find that such a problem, but certainly contemporary um, critics definitely find this implausible and hard to take. I think it's a really, really bad ending. How can you not recognise your husband? I, I just find that implausible. So for that reason, this this book does not get the full recommendation. And I think it's one for its regressive politics as well that is just simply best forgotten. Anyway, as I said, stay tuned for Cards at the Table. That's a great book. And um, we'll speak to you next time. Bye, everyone. <laughs> Thank you.